really good to be back. I was back in Phoenix last week officiating a, a wedding. We spent time with family and friends and letting them get to know Kaya a little bit. Um, it's, it's super good to see you, but, I, you know, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm especially glad I'm back because I have a little bit of a bone to pick with you people. <clears throat> Last year, you told me this was the worst winter, what, we ever had, ever. How many of you said that to me? Remember saying that to me last year? Do you know when we got our first snow last year? November 11. It snowed at my house on October 31st. This year. We're talking about lying this morning is what we're talking about. Because you people lied to me. The snow is beautiful, and uh, one day of winter is great. It's going to start warming up here right, right away, and, and we'll be back into summer before we know it. Um, hey, let's pray together. Uh, God, we invite you into this moment, into this time, into this space over the next 40 minutes um, as we just talk a little bit about what your word has to say. Um, ask, oh God, that you would uh, change our hearts, that you would kind of transform our minds, that you would cause us to think, feel, act differently, that you would cause us to love what you love and hate what you hate, that you would cause us to feel how you feel, see what you see and hear what you hear as we examine your word together. In Christ's name, amen. Well, last week, uh, I hope that you enjoyed Dr. Kimmel. I've actually been through his message uh, three or four times now online. You can listen to all the messages at bayviewglenn.org, and, and I absolutely loved what Dr. Kimmel talked about last week, and, and he said a lot of great stuff, uh, but, but the whole message last week kind of hinged on this one statement that Dr. Kimmel made up front at the beginning of the sermon. He, he said this, he said, most of us understand that we're saved by grace. Amazing grace, saved by grace, was blind, but now I see. We get that, we're saved by grace. But somewhere in the middle of this thing called life, we convince ourselves that God now needs our help. We're saved by grace, but, but, but now we impress God with our works. And Dr. Kimmel said last week, and he's right, that that is categorically false. That's absolutely not true. Yes, we are saved by grace, but we also lived by, live by grace. Grace should be the hallmark of every aspect of the Christ follower's life. It should be the heartbeat of all that we do, even after salvation. So if you were here last week, you remember that Dr. Kimmel talked about the ways in which grace, God's grace, now impacts the way that we think. And he talked about the difference between kind of a, a grace-based thinker and a non-grace-based thinker. And he called the grace-based thinker the abundant thinker. Uh, th that abundance mindset of, uh, I'm focused on Christ, I'm focused on eternity, God's got plenty for me, he'll take care of it and I can trust him. And the scarcity thinker thinks of, of themselves and they think in the moment and, and they're not trusting God with the big stuff because they're not living day to day by his grace. And then if you came back in the evening for our training session, we talked about the way grace impacts our marriage and grace impacts our, our families and our parenting. 
And so today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about another one of those aspects of the life of the Christ follower. The life of those who believe in Jesus, who have trusted him and his grace for their salvation. Another way in which this, this grace of God impacts our day in and day out life. And, and here's what we're talking about. We're talking about the way that grace impacts the way we treat one another, especially in the church. We're talking about the way that grace impacts the way that we treat one another, especially the way we treat one another in the church. And and I want you to know, before we go any further here, that for some of you today, this message is going to be a call to repent. I just want you to be able to kind of prepare yourself emotionally for that. I want you to kind of know that now as we track through this message together and and the way that grace impacts our our relationships at church. For some of us, it's going to be a call to repent. And, And remember, here's what repentance looks like. Number one, it means admitting to God, okay, God, you've treated me with grace. I don't always treat others the same way. You've treated me with grace. I don't always treat others the same way. Like, this isn't even my notes, I'm going to say it anyway. That should be easy, right? I don't always treat other people the way God treats me. That's easy. Like, I get that. And the second aspect of that repentance thing is, is saying, okay, God, this is not just about me owning it or getting it or understanding it. This is about me coming to you with open hands and say, I surrender, now change me. I give up, I release it. Now, I want to be transformed. I, I want to be changed. And for some of you, I, like I said, I just want you to know that as we track through this message today, there's going to be an invitation to repent when we conclude. A call to repentance. As the church lady would say, isn't that special? Mm-hmm. And the foundation for our conversation this morning is going to be a book of the Bible called Philippians. We call it Philippians for short, but really the, the, the long name is Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. So this guy named Paul, who's a follower of Jesus, he writes a letter to this church at a city called Philippi. Like I said, we call it uh, Philippians. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at kind of a Paul's overall theme for the book. And, and then we're going to talk a little bit about a couple of the specific comments that he makes to this church about the way that they're treating one another, about their relationships, about, their, about the way that they're interacting. So f- before we go any further, let's kind of get the vibe of how Paul is talking to the church. Let's talk about his tone for this church. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. If you don't know where Philippians is, it's about 80% of the way through your Bible. There's also a table of contents in the front. Feel free to use that if you don't know where Philippians is. There's a Bible in the seat back in front of you if you forgot your Bible this morning. If you don't have one, you can take that one home. It's our gift to you. Uh, and if that, uh, if all else fails, look up here on the screen. We've got the, uh, the scripture up here on the screen. Okay, so this is Paul's tone now to this church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And here in a few verses, Paul's going to tell this church that he longs for them all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
So here, here's what's happening. Paul planted this church. Paul started this church. He's kind of like a spiritual father here. And the church at Philippi are kind of like his spiritual kids. So the way that he jumps off from in this letter to the church at Philippi is just saying, I love you. I care about you. I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, dad's in the room. When you treat your kids this way, when, when you just tell them how much you love them and you're kissing them and you're hugging them and, and you're just wrapping your arms around them, especially your middle school kids, in public, how do they respond to you? Dad, I'm trying to be cool, man. You got me in snow boots and, I, you know, and now you're kissing me in front of my friends. Please, don't. And what do you say to your kids? I'm your dad. That's what dads do. You're, you're not going to be cool from the time you're 11 to the time you're 19. So let's just get over it, right? You're not going to be cool whether I tell you I love you and kiss on you in public or not. I'm the dad. That's what dads do. Now get over it. And it's almost as if Paul anticipates this response from the church at Philippi. Paul, why you got to tell us all the time how much you love us? And look how Paul defends himself. Look at verse 7. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. In other words, I'm your spiritual dad. I love you. I'm going to show it. Now get over it. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. Now look at the second half of verse 7. For you all are partakers with me of, say it with me, grace. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So right from the start, right from the very beginning of this letter, here's what Paul is saying. I love you, let's talk about grace. I love you, I started you. I was there when you gave your life to Jesus. I love you more than anything on the planet. Now let's talk about grace. Let's talk about grace. And this concept of grace was really important to the church at Philippi because there was a group of people called the Judaizers. There's not going to be a pop quiz at the end, so don't panic. You don't have to write it down, okay? group of people called the Judaizers. And here's what they were saying. Grace plus obedience uh, plus religious observances plus dietary restrictions plus jumping through religious hoops equals salvation. And they were telling this church that story, that lie. And the funny thing is, Paul says, look, grace plus anything doesn't equal squat. In fact, that's not grace at all. Grace plus anything. He's saying that, that's not, absolutely not the case. And this group of believers at Philippi, they weren't buying it from the Judaizers. They knew, I am saved by grace and grace alone. Grace plus nothing equals my salvation in Christ. This church at Philippi knew that. So they understood the grace saves me part, but, but they had missed this grace changes my relationships part. Get that. They understood the grace saves me part. But here's what they had missed. Grace changes my relationships. The way I interact, especially with other people in the church. How do I know that? Because over and over and over again in this letter to the church at Philippi, Paul addresses one specific problem. Conflict in the church. He talks about interpersonal relationships that were toxic and broken and strained. 
He addresses specifically people looking out for their own interests, demanding their rights, demanding their preferences, complaining, grumbling, arguing, and just being all in all lemon suckers. He says, grace may have taken hold in your life. You may trust Jesus for for your salvation by grace, but it hasn't taken hold in your relationships. He looks at this church in the face and he says this, I love you like a father loves his kids, but you've missed this grace thing. You've missed grace in your relationships and we need to talk about that. And before we go any further, let's, let's define grace, because grace really has two aspects. Look up here on the screen. Grace has two aspects. First is that grace is free, unmerited, and undeserved. It's free. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. Second, grace is favor, kindness, or goodness. So in order to define this word grace, you can take any one of those first words there on line one and combine them with any one of of, of the words on line two, and you get a good definition of grace. Free goodness, undeserved favor, unmerited kindness, undeserved goodness, free kindness, however you want to pair them up together, that is is grace. And God treats me with grace. That means he's good to me when I don't deserve it. He's kind to me even when I don't earn it. Amen? And I'll just be straight with you. I've done a lot of things to unearn it. I've done a lot of things to not deserve it. But God treats me with grace anyway. And so beginning in chapter 2, here's what Paul does. He says, now that you get that grace saves me part, let's talk about the way that should impact the way you treat one another. So pick it up with me at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. This is what Paul writes to this church. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What's Paul saying here? He's talking about how believers should treat one another. He's talking about how people in the church, the church at Philippi specifically, and the church called Bayview Glen too, how we should be treating one another. Here's what he says, and I just jotted down a few. He says, encourage one another, comfort one another, show affection and sympathy for one another, be unified in mind, be unified in love, agree with one another, look out for one another, submit your will and desires for one another. So you may be asking the same question that I ask. Why in the world would I do that? What's a good reason for that? Pick it up in verse 5. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's pretty good reasoning so far. Who was in very nature, or though in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's what Paul is saying. Jesus humbled himself for you. Now you humble yourself for others. 
Jesus comforted you, now you comfort others. Jesus ever encourages you, now you encourage others. Jesus showed affection and sympathy for you when you did not deserve it. Now you show affection and sympathy for others even when they don't deserve it. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice for you, now you sacrifice for others. Jesus gave his life for you, now you give your life for others. In other words, Jesus showed you grace, now you show grace to others. If you're taking notes, jot this down. The Bible commands us to treat one another the way God treats us, with grace. Unmerited favor. Undeserved goodness. Free kindness. This is what Paul is saying. God treated you that way. Jesus emptied himself, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so he could show you grace. Now, you treat others the same way. The Bible commands us to treat one another the way God treats us, with grace. So then Paul starts to get specific, which I really hate. He starts to get specific about the specific ways in which this concept, this principle of God showing me grace and me showing grace to others, when it takes root, when it takes hold, what will we see? First, we'll see less complaining and more doing. Less complaining and more doing. Let me prove it to you from the text. Philippians 2, verse 15, right after Paul talks about this, Jesus humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Right after, he says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things. That word all things there means all things. Without grumbling or disputing. So here's what Paul says to the church at Philippi. I don't care what you're doing. Do it with a happy heart. He says the same thing you say to your kids. If I ask you to do the dishes, do it with a happy heart. If I say we're going to Wonderland, do it with a happy heart. If I say rake the leaves, you do it with a happy heart. You ever, you ever say that to your kids? Parents, you ever say that to your kids? And they, you know, they say, go clean your room. And they go clean their room. But they grumble and complain and dispute as they go. That's not how I asked you to do this. What I'm asking you to do is do it with a happy heart. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. This is what Paul is saying to the church. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Do all things without grumbling. Less complaining, more doing. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. This is not a trick question. Does the Word of God stand the test of time? Yes, absolutely. You guys know where this is going, don't you? It's like, oh, no, I'm in trouble. <laughs> So does this admonition, this exhortation from Paul to the church at Philippi, if the word of God stands the test of time, does it apply to us today? Yes, indeed. So let's talk about some things that we like to grumble and complain about. I told you it was going to be tough. Let's talk, let's talk real specifically about some things that we like to grumble and complain about. This, of course, is not us. This is a church I read about on the internet, okay? Purely hypothetical. Everybody get it? Not us. Sometimes churches can grumble and complain about what ministry programs a church does or does not offer. Not us, of course. The church I read about on the internet. Sometimes churches can complain and grumble about music style. 
Sometimes the church, churches can complain or grumble about services being too short or too long. Churches can grumble and complain about how pastors dress on stage. I have no idea why. Sometimes churches can grumble and complain about what kind of training courses that we offer or the temperature in the sanctuary. Sometimes churches can grumble and complain about what we do or don't do in worship services. Too much of this, too much of that, not enough this, not enough that. Let's do more of this, less of that. I went back and looked at about six months worth of suggestions that I've received in email and voicemail form and personal form. And I eliminated the ones that were like kind of, that were nice. Hey, I would just recommend or I would just encourage, because we love that. We love recommendation and encouragement. That's great. Or hey, I missed something. Could you, could you maybe bring that back? We love that kind of stuff. All I did was take the ones where people were saying that, that we, like emails that we got, we were doing something wrong in the worship service. You need to do more singing at the end because it's wrong not to respond to the word of God, or at least implied that. And I said, okay, let's say we took all those suggestions and just applied them right away, day one, to our worship service. What would happen? We would run worship services about three hours long. Welcome to Bayview Glen. We'll be welcoming you for the next three hours. Churches tend to grumble and complain about all kinds of stuff. Can you think of anything else? I listed a lot of stuff here. Can you think of anything else? Look, honestly, grumbling and complaining in churches have become like our beloved pastime. It's like hockey and then grumbling, you know? Like, this is what we love to do. But look, that doesn't make it right, does it? It's because it happens. It doesn't make it right. So, so look, here's what Paul says to this church. He, 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 it's, it's as if he takes both of his hands and he puts them on their face And he brings them up close and he says, I love you too much to let you continue. Stop it. I was there when you started. I was there when you gave your life to Jesus. You're saved by his grace, but in this particular aspect of your life, you're not living in his grace. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Stop it. And because the word of God stands the test of time, Because this exhortation, this admonition from Paul to the church at Philippi is applicable for us today, I would just tell you, I love you very, very much. I don't have any other option of churches to go to in the greater Toronto area. I work here. I didn't move my family halfway across the country, halfway across the country, all the way across the country, to another country, put an adoption process at risk, because I didn't love you. I didn't need a job. I had a great job. I came here for a week of interviews and I fell in love with you. I love you. You've stood with us and walked through us in a transition, in a move. You've prayed for us as we brought Kaya into our home through adoption. I love you and I know you love me. So so I will say the same thing that Paul says to the church in Philippi. I love you. Now stop it. Do all things without grumbling or complaining, without grumbling or dispute. This is the call of Christ. This is the grace of God at work in our lives. Less complaining, more doing. Number two, when grace takes hold in a church, number two, less conflict, more reconciliation. 
less conflict, and more reconciliation. If you've got your Bibles open, look at chapter 4, verse 2. Paul addresses two women specifically. Chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, we don't know what specifically is going on between these two women here at the Philippian Alliance Church. But we do know that they're fighting. Their relationship is broken. It's strained. It's busted. We don't know the issue, but we do know that it's broken. And you know what's interesting here? Because I just find this... It's fascinating. Paul does not resort to begging very often. In fact, this is the only place in the scripture where Paul resorts to begging. Here's what Paul says. You know, God doesn't beg you for squat. I'm not begging you to obey God. It's best for you to obey God, so you just do it. But in this case, he uses this word entreat. It means to plead or beg. And he says, I beg you, Euodia, and I beg beg you, Syntyche, to agree in the Lord, to get along in the Lord. You know what else I find interesting here? I, I, I'm, I, I think it's just curious, the things that are conspicuously missing from Paul's exhortation. What do you not see here? Paul doesn't say, okay, let's talk about this issue you're fighting about. He says, let's talk about the issue. He doesn't say that. He says, let's talk about your relationship. Paul undoubtedly knew what the issue was. Uh, Messengers like Timothy and Epaphroditus, they went back and forth between Paul and this church all the time. Paul knows what they're fighting about. It's not that he's ignorant to the issue. He just thinks it's secondary in priority to their relationship. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't even talk about it. He doesn't talk about who's right, who's wrong. He just says, I beg you, Euodia, and I beg you, Syntyche, to get along in the Lord. For Paul, the issue isn't important. Whose right isn't important. He says the relationship is most important. So let the grace of God take hold and work it out. Why? Why does Paul beg them to get along in the Lord? You know why? Because he knows what Jesus said, that they will know you are Christians by how much Bible you memorize. They will know you are Christians by how often you go to church. They'll know you're Christians by how much money you give away. They'll know you're Christians because of the way you defend your faith or because you homeschool your kids or because you live an impeccably moral life. All those things are good things, great things, but not the best thing and definitely not what Jesus said. They will know you are Christians, say it with me, by the way that you love one another. So I beg you, Let grace take hold and get along in the Lord. So let's talk about broken relationships here at Bayview Glen, shall we? Let's do that. I'll I'll name some, no, I'm not going to name anybody. (laughs) Nobody panic. (laughs) I just, I want to be honest with you that that Bayview Glen as a church is is susceptible to broken and strained relationships. We're we're susceptible, and here's why. Because we're different from a lot of churches in a couple of ways. One, we are an established church. We're not five years old. We're not 10 years old. We've been in this property 35 plus years. Some of you date back to Avenue Road days. I mean, it's, it's, you know, 70-year-old, you know, 
relationships here in this church. So I have people come into my office and they say, you know what, there's a broken relationship and a strained relationship and, you know, our families don't get along or she and I don't get along or he and I don't get along. Oh, okay. And I'll ask, you know, instead of doing what Paul does, I beg you get along in the Lord, which is what I should do. I ask, well, what's the issue? What's the issue? It's like, well, uh, my great uncle and her second cousin twice removed, they were on the decorating committee together. And they didn't agree what color we should paint the such and such or the so and so. And they didn't treat each other very well. And, and the relationship was broken and strained and it's, it's just taken a long time to get over. Wow, wow, wow. That sounds like an intense disagreement. Sounds like an intense fight. Like, was it really that big a deal that they, they're not able to reconcile, that they're not able to, to, to mend their relationship? It, it was really that significant? Oh, yes, Pastor Lucas. It was very significant. So significant, in fact, that Pastor Tozer had to intervene. Pastor Tozer? <laughs> That's like 55 years ago. And they're upset at the color of the such and such or the so and so from Avenue Road? We're not even in that building anymore for crying out loud. Fix it. I beg you, agree with one another in the Lord. Mend your relationship. It's the only time in church I will tell you to pick up your phone and send a text or an email. Step on the foyer if you need to and call somebody and say, you know what? The issue isn't that important. Who's right isn't that important. You know what's most important is our relationship. They'll know we're Christians because of our love for one another. And I want to demonstrate grace to you. Let's, let's reconcile. Because when grace takes hold, we'll see less conflict and more reconciliation. Number three, when grace takes hold in a church, when grace begins to reign in us, not just saved by grace, but transformed by grace, here's what we'll see. Less law and more Christ. Less law and more Christ. Less legalists and more graceists. Less scorekeeping and more living in the victory that God has already won on our behalf. You know, it's interesting. There's this moment in Philippians um, where Paul begins to kind of list his spiritual pedigree. He kind of, he kind of just plays along. He says, all right, all right, let, let's do this. Let's do the scorekeeping thing. Who can beat me? And he starts to list all of his spiritual pedigree, all the religious things, all his degrees and accolades and all the things. He says, you know, I, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecuting the church, you want to try to beat me? You got nothing. My spiritual pedigree is awesome. I've been here a long time. I've been attending here longer than you've been alive. That kind of stuff. He lists all those things, and then look what he says. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now, I want to define that word rubbish for you because we think it's a polite word because we fly British Airways and then the woman coming down the aisle is going, rubbish, anybody, rubbish, rubbish, anybody, rubbish, rubbish. It's a very polite word. 
it means excrement. It means dung heap. That's, li- that's literally what the word means. That's literally what it means. So all my spiritual pedigree, all the things I did for God, all the religious stuff, all the hoops I jumped through, all the obedience, I consider it rubbish. Why? At the end of verse 8, in order that I may gain Christ, be found in him. So what's this mean for you and me? It means that as we grow closer to Jesus, as we know Jesus and live in his grace more and more, it means that Jesus is the sun that outshines all our other desires. Our spiritual pedigree, our church attendance, even our own morality. Morality stays intact. Holiness stays intact. Paul's the same guy that wrote, you know, shall we go on sinning? So that grace may increase by no means. How are you living that any longer? You're in grace now. Grace is a motivation for holiness. It's not a permission to be unholy. So all of that stays intact. But the most important thing is what? Gaining Christ. Living in Christ. Knowing Christ. Being found in him. Fellowshipping with him in his suffering. Knowing the power of his resurrection. Less law and more Christ. Let's talk about specifics. Here's what that means. It means when a woman comes into our worship service and we feel she's dressed inappropriately, the legalist is concerned about covering cleavage. The gracist is concerned that she would gain Christ and be found in him. See the difference? For the friend at work that enjoys all downtown has to offer. The legalist is concerned with modifying that behavior. The gracist is concerned with that friend finding ultimate satisfaction in the only place that you can find it, in Christ. So this one, this less law, more Christ thing, this struck me personally this week. One of the things I try to do as I preach sermons, one of the things I try to do is apply to myself first and then I come talk to you. Like, I'd like to be changed by Jesus from the inside out. So as I, as I thought about grace impacting my life, grace taking root in my heart and changing the way that I treat others, changing the way that I see others, changing the way that I view others, I started talk, talk, or thinking about... <laughs> This idea of, of grace and, and, and grace for others. And, and here's the thing, I'll be straight with you. For people who don't know Jesus, if you never met Jesus before, I think I'm pretty good at extending them grace. I think I'm, I think I'm pretty good at that, extending somebody who doesn't know Jesus grace. Uh, for Christians, people who know God that make big mistakes, addiction, uh, affairs, sin that they're just caught up in that they can't get, just kind of because of some of my own life experience, I'm pretty good at extending those folks grace. And I want you to know it's not just in my head. There's other people that have said, yeah, you're really good at that. They would affirm that in me. You're good at showing people who don't know Jesus or Christians that make big mistakes. Uh, You're good at showing them grace. You know who I'm not good at showing grace to? Legalists. Pharisees. Law lovers, those who keep score, 
Those who are proud of their own accomplishments and religiosity. Those who think church attendance makes them the big winner in God's eyes. When the reality is that Jesus makes them a big winner in God's eyes. And you know what I thought about in this message this week as I tried to apply it to myself? Here's, here's, here's what kept running across my mind. If you dislike legalists, you're well on your way to becoming one. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? Like, I got grace for everybody except for hypocrites. Man, I hate them. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. That makes you one. Well, I guess I hate myself then. God convicted me this week. He said, Luke, my grace, that's for everybody. For those who don't know Jesus, for those who do and make big mistakes, and even for legalists. And I could just hear the voice of God in my head that said, you better thank me that it is, that it covers Paul, the Pharisee, the legalist, that it covers Nicodemus. You know why? Because I count myself in that lot. The law lover, the one who's proud of his own accomplishments. Just hear the voice of God saying, Luke, less law, more Christ. My grace applies to all. As I talked with um, Amy about my sermon this week, she asked me a, a great question. She said, okay, so I, I got it, grace, I got it, grace treating others. She said, she said how is it that we can hold on, can, can we hold on to our preferences? Or how do, how do we hold on to our preferences, our, our rights, our convictions? How do we hold tightly to those things and show grace to others? Because let's, let's face it, we have some convictions, don't we? They may be theological, they may be behavioral, they may be philosophical. How about preferences? Do we have any of those? No, no, absolutely not. We have preferences. We talked about some of them. What about rights? We have rights, don't we? Or even perceived rights? Rights as human beings, as church members, as leaders, long-time attenders, rights that we've earned over time, rights that come with money or status or intelligence. We feel that we've got rights. So how do we hold on to our preferences, to our convictions, and to our rights and still show grace? How do we do that? Here's my contention. We can't. You got to let them go in order to show grace. You know how I know that? Go back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind in yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen, the man whose preferences were always right, the man who had every right to all power and authority, the man who deserved to be listened to, thought of, valued, and understood, the man who should have been crowned king and served from the day he stepped foot on the planet let it all go for the sake of grace. Humbled himself, 
emptied himself, became obedient to death. And here's what Paul is saying to this church in Philippi. And here's what God would say to us this morning. You are never, never, never more like Jesus than when you show grace. Did Jesus know the word? Of course he did. He quoted the word. Did Jesus live a a moral life? Of course he did. He never sinned. But you're never more like him than when you empty yourself, humble yourself, release those preferences, release what you perceive to be your rights. You take a cue from Jesus and say, I'm just going to release that so that I can show grace. Men and women of God, as a church, we need to let grace reign. We need to let grace be on our lips, grace saturate our hearts, grace transform the way we treat one another. One concluding question. I'm going to pray and be done. One concluding question. How would your world be different if you were rooted and growing in grace? And I'm not talking about the world, the world, your world, your family, your school, your job, your private life, what you think about, your financial life, the way you interact with other people here at church. How would it be different? My suggestion is that grace would radically transform each and every aspect of our life. And my contention is that grace should transform each and every aspect of our life. Our prayers, oh God, that we would be rooted and growing in grace. That we would see less conflict and more reconciliation, that we would see less complaining and more doing, that above all, we would see less law and more Christ. Let's join our hearts together and pray. As the band kind of makes their way back up to close us here with a song declaring in Christ alone, just with heads bowed and eyes closed, we're not going to do a hand raised thing. We're not going to do a stand up, come down front thing. But I did tell you that, that for some of you, this message would be a call to repent. A call to, to own it. And say, yeah, God, you showed me grace, but I don't always show grace to others. Can I just encourage you, even as your pastor, exhort you, that for those of you who may feel that little thing in your heart that going, but Lucas, you don't understand. That little piece of your heart that wants to defend and explain and say, but yeah, but I know, you know. If you're feeling that, this call to repentance is probably for you. It's between you and the God you serve. I'm not going to get in the middle of it. I'm just just suggesting that if you feel that in your heart, it's probably for you. And here's what that looks like. It's a prayer like this. Oh God, you have treated me with grace. You've shown me favor, kindness, and goodness for free. When I didn't deserve it, you poured mercy and blessing and joy and peace and abundance out onto me. And I have withheld from others. And I'm sorry. 
God, I surrender to your transforming grace. See that surrender there? I surrender to your transforming grace. Now I invite you to change me. That I would be different today because of your grace. Oh God, is the desire of our hearts together that your grace would be our lifeblood. That we would be known not by how much we know, but by our grace. Our love for one another. Our ability to, to let rights go and let privileges go and let preferences go so that we might be united. One heart, one mind, one body, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And it's only because of your transforming grace that we can do that. God, may we be rooted and established and growing in grace. Oh God, that it would impact, transform radically the way we treat one another. In Christ's name, the people of God together said, Amen. <laughs>